Well met, friends. Steph here. Happy New Year! This month's episode features the audio of a panel we presented at Oxenmoot 50, as well as our thoughts on our Oxenmoot experience, both of which were recorded in September of 2023. Originally, we intended to release this episode in October, hence all the autumnal chat. But due to the ongoing WGA and SAG after strikes, we decided to hold it to not drive traffic to Struckworks. Now that the strikes are over, we're very proud to bring you this episode. Enjoy! Well met, friends. I'm Jude Vase. And I'm Steph Midlock. Welcome to Athrobeth, a podcast exploring the merry moots of Tolkien's Legendarium. Hey, Jude. Hi. Happy October to you. And to you. It's autumn now. Tell Ohio that. Do you have any (laughs) autumnal thoughts to share? Is it not autumnal where you are? Half of the trees in my neighborhood are convinced it's autumn and the other half think it's summer which is the most Ohio mood. Oh, dear. So, uh, Well, I can tell it is fall because I housed the majority of a bag of candy corn today. <laughs> and now I feel really sick yeah. and a little sugared out. <laughs> well, certainly all of the stores around here know that it's autumn because it is pumpkin spice everything. <gasps> yes, pumpkin spice life. You know what? We're reclaiming it. I know it's basic. I don't care. I, I like it. I got no look. I love pumpkin spice. I'm just saying that I know that it has hit nominal fall when pumpkin spice comes out of the woodwork. So <laughs> we survived oxen moot. We survived. We're back from oxen moot. We survived. We had a we had a great time. One might even say that at least half of us thrived at oxen moot. <laughs> Some of us, well, and it's not well, important well. to point fingers, but some of us spent a good portion of Oxenmoot wildly, wildly jet lagged. But others of us were all sociable and friendly and met people and shook hands and made great connections for the podcast. Let's, you know, uh, <laughs> randomly, uh, y- <laughs> later on, you'll talk about all the cool people we met and I'll talk about, I don't know. Travel plans and how to do them properly. <laughs> anyway, I well, in Jude's defense, I I, uh, I did arrive to England quite a bit before you did because I have family there, and so I went a little early to see some folks. So that is not your fault. It's no, fine. I'm, I'm I, joking. I had a great time. You were lovely, and I feel like yeah. I I made some great connections and I met so many cool people. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about that later. We're gonna go. Yeah, I think you have a couple of quick notes at the top and then we're going to go straight into our panel recording yes yeah so Atherbeth had the pleasure of presenting a panel at Oxenmoot this year and for those of you who may not know Oxenmoot is the yearly gathering from the Tolkien Society that happens in Oxford where papers are shared and merriments are made and friendships are forged and uh, we, this was Jude and mine first time actually going there uh, in person. I think we'd both attended online in the past. Yep. And so we did this panel called Tolkien and New Media. 
and we're going to play it for you in total. But I want to say, so I recently read, I'm holding up a little USB thumb drive that no one can see except Jude, but we were given the chat transcript from the folks who were tuning in online because Oxenmoot is a hybrid event. And I just want to say to everybody who could not hear anything because the sound was terrible, I'm so sorry. I'm very sorry. I, <laughs> I oh, so much of like so much of that chat was like, we can't hear anything. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Oh no. So we're hoping that this podcast makes up for it. Yeah. And I okay, so I also so we're gonna get into that in just a second and play it in its entirety. Before we get started with the panel uh, and playing that live recording. I want to do a corrections cul-de-sac from the panel. In that chat, that the aforementioned chat, friend of the show, Luke Shelton, was tuning in online. Thank you so much, Luke, for coming. We really appreciate that. And he rightly pointed out that we did not mention the co-creator of the Tolkien fanfiction survey who worked with Don Walsh-Thuma, and that is Maria Alberto. And so I was so glad to read that he had mentioned her name so thank you for doing yeah, thank that you, luke. luke and maria were so sorry luke actually had i don't know if, if all of you know but luke has an amazing podcast with sarah brown and sr westvik called the tolkien experience podcast it's a really cool podcast they have lots of they have guests on and they ask them the same like set of five questions about like what when, how did you discover tolkien all these great things and they had maria on back in 2020 in august uh, their episode number 18 and I'm going to link to it in our show notes. So definitely go check that out. And we apologize to Maria for not mentioning her uh, on the panel. Yeah. So there we go. We're going to, we'll play the panel. And then we, Jude and I are going to come back at the end to kind of talk about the panel, to kind of some of our yeah. thoughts about it. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about our experience at Oxenmoot. So if you want to hear that, please stick around after the panel. But we definitely wanted to put the panel up top for those who are just interested in, in hearing that in that audio. Just as a quick summary at the top, we recorded this panel at Oxenmoot 2023 at St. Anne's College on Saturday, September 2nd, 2023. The panelists, besides Steph as moderator and myself, we had S.R. Westwick, Tolkien scholar, writer, and researcher, Mercury Natis, queer historian and Tolkien scholar, and Marcel R. Bules, a.k.a. the Tolkienist, Tolkien scholar, and founder of the German Tolkien Society. Yeah, it was a great group. Yeah, totally awesome group, uh, as you are about to hear. Thank you all for being on. The goal of the discussion was to explore how new media has changed the way in which people engage with the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, and for the purposes of our discussion, we sort of defined new media as any media that is delivered digitally. And you're going to hear us say that again a couple of times at the top, just so that everybody's on the same page of what the goals of this panel were. Yep. So again, this is Tolkien and New Media presented at Oxenmoot, and we hope that you enjoy it. So without further ado... Producer James, cut in. Hit it. That was weird. Cut in. Bull. Hi, everybody. Thank you all so much for being here. Welcome to Tolkien and New Media, presented by Athrobeth, which is a podcast that explores the lesser trod paths of Tolkien's legendarium. We have thematic monthly episodes the first Wednesday of the month, so check us out if you're interested. 
just for your information, we are recording this uh, for future release on the podcast. So I just want to thank you all for being a live audience and make sure you know that if you scream out like, you guys suck, it'll be forever. <laughs> so don't. Just, you can do that. Yeah. If we do. Oh my God, thank you. Yay, it's going to go good. Now it feels good. So I just want to take a minute as we're funneling in to thank um, the Tolkien Society, especially Monty Thorpe, who was instrumental in making this happen. So thank you so much. And also Elena Davidson, who I emailed 7,000 times. And uh, so I'm sorry, but thank you. And I'm just, we're so happy to be here. So thank you. And I'd also like to thank our wonderful panelists who will introduce themselves in a minute. But let me start by saying, hi, I'm Steph Midlock. I am a co-host of Afterbeth and uh, my pronouns are she, her. And I'm going to act as your moderator today. Hi, Tim. Hey, what's up? <laughs> There's nothing like being put on the spot, right? As you're like trying to funnel in, it's the worst. No, please come on in, please come on in. So hi, sorry, so I'm Steph Midlock. Um, let, so just to reiterate, the goal of this panel is to explore how new media has changed the way in which people engage with the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, right? And for the purposes of this discussion, we're considering new media to be any media that's delivered digitally, right? So blogs, videos, uh, Twitter, or X, or whatever it's called now, who knows? So that is kind of where we're starting from. I did want to do just a very quick note before we get started to address the ongoing Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA strike that's currently um, in progress in the United States. During this panel, it is incredibly likely that we are going to bring up um, the movies and the TV show, which are considered struck work by those groups. And because Afterbeth as a podcast stands in solidarity with WGA and SAG-AFTRA, we're going to hold the release of the, we, we're going to talk about them, but we're going to hold the release of the podcast until after the strike is concluded, um, just so that we're not driving anybody towards struck work. So I just wanted to put that out there. So yeah, no, thank you all. It's important, right? Yeah, all right, so great, without further ado, I would love to ask our wonderful panelists to introduce themselves, so please. Hi everybody, it's nice to see all of you here. Um, I'm Esor, uh, my pronouns are they, them. I am a early career Tolkien scholar, writing primarily about uh, warfare and trauma. That's also what I do with my actual degree, which is in international war studies. <laughs> and um, other than that, I'm also a well-known second age enjoyer and a land deal connoisseur. So. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Jude? Uh, my name is Jude Vase. Uh, I am, my pronouns are he, him. I am the other co-host of Atherbeth. I guess I'm nominally a Tolkien scholar, I guess. <laughs> uh, mostly I just do some of the research for Atherbeth and uh, make a lot of dumb jokes yeah. on the podcast. Perfect. Thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Marcel Bullis. My pronouns are he, him. You may know me as the traveling Tolkienist at thetolkienist.com or studyhq.com the Tolkienist. My biggest achievement uh, this very Oxenmood is that I got to drink the Black Pine whiskey first, my girlfriend second on Thursday evening, and she had her first whiskey in life with a bit of uh, a Pinus Riga from Tolkien's favorite tree, and then we managed to convince them to come to Oxenmood. Amazing. Yay, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hi, so my name is Mercury Natis. Um, I am they, them, he, him, but I am happy with either. I am an early career Tolkien scholar. My focus is queer theory and queer studies, but I'm also interested in reception theory and I'm interested in horror and the Gothic and how it shows up in Tolkien's works as well. Uh, and I'm super active on social media because I have ADHD and it's super great. <laughs> <laughs> the perfect person. Uh, now, a little bird told me that it's actually Mercury's birthday today. Yay! Yay! <laughs> so because 
because we all just had lunch and it's nice to, you know, use your diaphragm, can we do a little happy birthday? <laughs> happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Mercury. Happy birthday to you. Yay! Awesome. It's been lovely talking to you. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you all. Goodbye. Thank you, my most estimable hobbit. <laughs> Amazing. Okay, so I mean, let's let's like jump on in here. Let's get going. So just once again, for people that were settling, the goal of this panel is to explore how new media has changed the way in which people engage with the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. And for new media, we mean anything that's delivered digitally. So I really want this to be a, a conversation because nobody likes those panels where it's like one after the other. But to start, it is going to be a little one after the other. I just want to ask each of our panelists if we could go kind of down the line and maybe, you know, these, you are all prolific creators of Tolkien content on the internet. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and sort of why you chose your particular platform? Um, and let's just, and this will be the only time we're going down the line like little ants in a row. So please. Okay, sure. So. I think my, my Tolkien internet presence started the way it started, I think, for a lot of people, which was with writing fan fiction. And that's how I got into a lot of my early communities on um, with the Silmarillion Writers Guild on Discord and on Dreamwith, because I actually entered their sphere right when live journal sort of went kaput. And so we transferred around to Dreamwith. But I think where I really started to kind of create an identity for myself outside of the group was when I moved onto Twitter because I had seen that a lot of my scholar friends were, you know, using it as a platform to network, to share their ideas, to be able to engage like in these sort of soundbite sort of uh, discussions that triggered even more research. And I loved it. When I decided to become more active on Twitter happened to coincide with the release of the hand posters for the Rings of Power. And so the sort of my entire fandom experience on Twitter and the identity that I've cultivated there has sort of gone hand in hand with the way that the platform and the community evolved during the Rings of Power. I ended up becoming quite an active part of that community for, um, for a number of reasons, which I'm sure we're gonna unpack as we get into the panel. But uh, I, I ended up choosing it largely because of the community that I was able to have there. That was one that I found appreciated because I'm somebody who is obviously like I'm a scholar now, you know, I've done, I've read all like the deep lore, the home and gnome and everything. But um, before that, I was introduced to the films via the adaptations and I'm still a great enjoyer of Tolkien adaptations in general for all of them, for all of their, for all of their value. And uh, it was this Rings of Power community on Twitter, the particular space of it that I'm in has been so amenable to that in ways that my other online fandom communities have not been. And so that's why even though the site is crashing and burning, I'm still there, probably gonna be there until the day it falls apart because the people that are on there are the ones who are able to both, you know, help me feel appreciated both for the heavy deep lore posting as well as the silly, you know, fandom adaptation memes. So yeah, I think that's why, that's why Twitter. <laughs> that's awesome, thank you. Jude, how about you? We've been doing Athrobeth for about five years, and before we did that, I was casually active on Twitter. Um, but when we started doing Athrobeth, a lot of the podcasting community I was familiar with, Twitter was their primary way of communicating releases and building community. So I would not claim to be our primary social networking person, um, but I did try and put myself out there and associate with the podcast and try and promote the podcast 
and Twitter was the place to do that. So when we started the podcast, we started the Twitter account for it and started connecting with people. And we found the Tolkien community in general to be incredibly welcoming. We had the benefit of, we had some loose connections with the Signum University people because I had taken some classes there and some of the professors were retweeting our first episode and stuff like that, which was super cool and got us connected with people. And it just kind of built a really nice little web of people that uh, has connected us to other Tolkien scholars. And that's where we've sat. We're everywhere now because like Twitter's on fire. Um, and it, it remains to be seen where we go next. But yeah, it's Twitter has kind of been the place to promote your podcast forever. So that's where we've been. Great. Thank you. How about you, Marcel? I would like to just, you know, on the side, mention that my birthday is the 3rd of September. It is tomorrow. Why is that a lot Now don't. I, I, okay, in my defense. What a coincidence. And, uh, I thought Germans don't like it to celebrate ahead of time, right? No, I don't. I don't. Okay. No, 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 See? no, no, no. Just, you know. Marcel is the Bilbo to my Frodo. It all works out quite well. <laughs> and uh, usually at midnight. So the two days cross. There we go. Uh, but what I was trying to go for, uh, actually, it was born in uh, 72. So I am slightly off the uh, slightly elder generation. And what we did back in the day when we didn't have the internet was we founded societies. But to promote the work of the societies, uh, you know, you got a website up and back in the day when you things had like MySpace and the forums, I think that's one of the points my, we may be talking as well about the social media panel as technology in itself, because that brick is sort of like ruining all of our lives now. And 20 years ago, you didn't have that, or at least most of the people didn't have that. So how technology shapes the way of how media and new media is working. I have like more than 100 apps on my phone on a phone that the company is no longer building because LG doesn't do any for, no phones anymore. But the technology is a great way of connecting people, connecting a lot of people. And if we can't get together like an Oxamoot, Twitter's on fire, Twitter's gone, obviously, which is a really, really sad experience. And it will also be a topic for me, at least on the panel, is about how easily communication can, can fail. And if we rely too much on one channel or one or two channels of communication, and how are we as a community going to interact in the future? I think that podcasts are a brilliant idea. So uh, maybe that's one of the ways we might be doing it and get a community going from there, like the PPP and you guys and everyone else. So. And yours as well. Yeah. Thank you. How about you, Mercury? So I'm mostly on Twitter. I've been trying to do Blue Sky, which I don't really like. I've been trying to put more things on my blog. I started with, I've been on the internet pretty much my entire life. Uh, my dad was a um, software engineer, so we got computers really early. Even as a millennial, we were still in dial-up land, but we were on the internet all the time. And like many people, I came to fandom and the internet through slash fiction and through uh, fan fiction as well. And the Tolkien fandom was with the Peter Jackson films was actually my first, one of my first online fandoms and my first engagement with the online community. And when I, one of the things I noticed, which is what brought me partially to being in Tolkien sphere, was how with a lot of other fandoms, you can ship whatever you want slash wise and you'll make up a reason for it to exist. And great, you can do whatever you want, play, have fun. But with Tolkien stuff, it's a lot more specific. It's a lot more specific because it actually draws from the text as opposed to from these ideas of what fandom creates. And that brought me sort of to this sphere partially. I, well, most of what I do is as a public educator, uh, it's what I consider myself a public educator. I want all of my content to be accessible 
first and foremost, accessible to everyone and create a sense of community and foster a sense of community. Um, and there I pulled up a really, really short poem on my Twitter that I re retweeted maybe a few weeks ago uh, by Sean Thomas Doherty. And it goes, why bother is the title of the poem. And it says, because right now there is someone out there with a wound in the exact shape of your words. And that is everything to me about media, uh, new media and what we can achieve. Um, and everything I try to do is to make the people who have these same thoughts as I do and have the same ideas as I do, but maybe don't have the education to be as eloquent as I, as I am about it, to see themselves reflected back and find the wound, the, the words that are the shape of their wound and to feel seen and to feel known and to feel understand, understood. And new media does that beautifully, absolutely beautifully, because it makes it accessible, it makes it shareable, it puts your voice out there and it amplifies voices. And it's just a shame that we're, you know, kind of losing that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but we're definitely gonna talk about that more, so. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautifully said. Thank you so much. I mean, so it sounds like the main theme on, of all of, of all of everything you said is connection, right? And I think we all feel that. That's, I think, why we're all here this weekend, right? Is to, like, have these beautiful connections with one another, with people that we've just met. So, all right, that kind of leads me to my next question then. So we know, okay, so we've all been using new media for a number of years, right? With, with these recent things happening with Twitter and X kind of shutting down, as, as Marcel was saying, we've seen platforms rise and fall in prominence, and we've seen like different trends in online communication come and go, right? We've all like Snapchat, all those things that have gone out to pasture or whatever. And uh, while us millennials do love an animated GIF, apparently they're not cool anymore <laughs> with the younger generation. So what's that about? Come on. Um, so I guess I guess maybe maybe and maybe Marcel I don't know or whoever wants to, to kind of take this but um, I guess my question is how has this like evolving world of new media changed the way you see people interacting with Tolkien content and maybe with your own Tolkien content? Well, if I if, you know what I realize is particularly if you look at Oxenbridge I think it's a good metaphor as well for the wider and larger community. Uh, Tolkien fandom. Some of you who've been here for a few years, you may have noticed that the number of people who are here, which is absolutely amazing, has grown substantially, like massively. I think that's 130 first time is or something. That used to be in Oxenmoot, well above the average number of people at Oxenmoot. And I'm not complaining. I'm really, really stressing this. I'm not complaining. But it's a huge number of people. So the, the topic of my talks with about 50, 60 different people who've known me or seen me or wanted to talk to me said, we couldn't find you. There are so many people in here that this network of human communication, this urban legend of you can know 130 people in your life and that's your social network, your direct network, um, works here as well. So what I've seen in the last couple of years with a pandemic, you bring online uh, communities together and the opportunity of having hybrid conventions, which is amazing, particularly people who cannot come here, who cannot afford to come here because it's, there are so many barriers to get past, for the disabled, etc is that the number of people who have Tolkien fans has grown substantially. Wonderful, ace, topic. But because of the different fears, it's difficult to find a coherence, to find a place. We don't have one place anymore. We don't have one convention anymore. We don't have a space anymore. So you, the thing right now is really networking, is asking the people, well, I don't really know much about science fiction. I usually turn red and blush and do stuff. <laughs> I read out stuff like this on conventions because obviously I'm a really decent reader. And whenever there's like a bleep, people enjoy that a lot. I don't know why, <laughs> but the thing is getting networking. And that is the thing that I'm trying to see and work together with other people right now is to still have that connection. If someone has, I love podcasts, I love 
fiction, I love fan fiction, I love this. And I usually try to share that and say, I know those people, ask them, because it's no longer the stuff I know. And that is something, I mean, the five people sitting here, we are from different spheres. We have common interests, obviously, which all can fans. But that is the thing, and I'm, I'm not quite sure yet how the networking is going to work out, let's say, in the next couple of years. Is Oxenmood a good place to simply network? Or is it a podcast? Or is it Blue Sky? Or might it be Twitter? Um, I'm hopeful, because we all are interested in meeting other people who love this stuff. But I don't know yet. So I'm a, I'm a bit confused right now. I love Oxenmood as much as ever. But I'm like, what the hell? I haven't seen you. I've seen like six people I've seen last 18 years ago. <laughs> and they came up at Friday night and said, Marcel, you've been here for Wednesday. You've been here since Wednesday. And I said, yeah, sure. Yeah, but it's Friday. Why haven't I seen you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you sort of have to put in a little more effort now to make sure you hit everybody, right? And also, like, the connections that we make, you know, you then have to kind of foster them throughout the year or, uh, so that you don't lose people. And especially as these social media things are rising and falling. I know when Twitter started to get rocky, I sent out messages to a few of you going, where are you going next? Because I want to follow. And I think that's, and so Marcel, your point about like, well, what happens? Like if, how, you know, that there's a fear in losing those connections, I think, right? If they are all on like one platform. So it is kind of interesting. Can any of you kind of share a standout story about how maybe you engaged with Tolkien content like over the years maybe like an early story or like how or, or like a time when you really felt connected to Tolkien but through a new media avenue that'd be kind of cool uh, I have a really good one if you Please. guys want to think about it that'd be great um so not to give too much of my life story there was a period a few years ago where I kind of hit rock bottom and I didn't know what I want to do with the rest of my life uh and then the diversity Tolkien and diversity conference happened and I went to the Tolkien and diversity conference and I went oh wait this is something I can do with the rest of my life. This is an actual field of scholarship that is relevant to my interests. And I've been, I've been here since I was 12. Yes, this is amazing. And then around the same time, Nature of Middle Earth was about to drop. And a footnote got leaked uh, as part of the whole, and anyone who's chuckling has read the footnote. Uh, and the footnote, in the footnote, um, Tolkien is working out sort of this idea of same-sex love that excludes sex. Um, and <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, is there a single footnote that Tolkien has written that isn't long? <laughs> They're all long. Um, and so I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity. It's what I'm interested in. I share. I reposted the screen, uh, the screenshot of the footnote, and said, "Here's my analysis of this footnote." And I was a nobody. I had maybe a hundred followers on Twitter. It got retweeted so many times. It got circled around the, the, the fandom. I gained maybe 300 followers in a night. Um, it, it introduced me to Sarah Brown. It introduced me to a whole bunch of scholars and it got me in the door. That's when I followed you. Yes, exactly. And it's things like that that are incredible and are just not possible without this new media. That I was, I didn't have a background in Tolkien studies. I was, I have a master's, but not in this field. I was able to produce academic work on Twitter and it gets circulated and it got me in the door. No money paid, nothing. Yeah. That's awesome. And that's the beauty of it, right? Is that it is a kind of a great equalizer in a way because any of us can have a great thought and put it out there and 
it could be accessed by, by so many more people than maybe back in the old days when meetings were only in person, right? Um, and it was only if you could happen to be there. So that accessibility thing is absolutely, that's right. Anyone else, do you have anything? Yeah, I do actually. There was, um, so when I, I mentioned that I started off like in you know, Silmarillion Writers Guild and on Tumblr and Dreamwith and stuff. And to be honest, it wasn't the easiest thing being a fan of the second age because a lot of people, they were very interested in the first age and it actually kind of weirdly felt quite isolating because, you know, I'd try to participate in exchanges and they'd be like, oh, what characters do you want or whatever? And I'd put like, oh, like Elendil and Isildur or something. And it would be very difficult to find people who wanted to engage with that, to write stories about it or share art. So I'd always default to other characters who I knew were popular, who like Sauron or Thranduil or something. I love them too, but you know, I wanted, I wanted my second age fix. And it was, it was a little bit, um, it felt isolating because I didn't know anybody who liked the same things in the legendarium that I did. And I felt I was always trying to like make myself kind of like characters who I appreciated but didn't really love. And then, um, and this will, it'll, it'll just keep coming up because the dawn of Rings of Power Twitter just intersected with how I started engaging with new media. But because that also coincided with the publication of The Fall of Numenor, I had made all of these new friends who, because of the show, they were engaged in the same time period of Middle-earth that I've been interested in for my pretty much as long as I've been reading Tolkien since I first read the books in the early 2000s. And I was excited because like, you know, they're talking about these characters that I enjoy, that's great, that's grand. But the moment that really struck home for me was in one of our little group chats. Somebody started talking about Appendix B of Fall of Numenor, which is the chapters from the Book of Lost Tales. And I got so emotional because I was like, I don't know anybody who's like read this, read these chapters and is like as emotional about Elendil walking through his garden and going to talk to, to um, uh, Isildur, who was named, um, uh, I think, Herendil in those drafts. And he was just swimming in the sea and people were talking about those chapters. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's been, I've been in this fandom for like almost 15 years now and I've not had anybody to talk about this with. And so I don't think that would have happened without the connectivity of new media and the way that it coincided with all of these like pop culture and publication events all together. Like it was sort of a beautiful moment of synchronicity and it kind of like the, I mean, I, th I think with any, any fandom interest, especially if you have like niche interests within that, there is always this fear of isolation, which is why events like Oxenwood are so important and like fulfilling and heartwarming because already there is this thread that binds all of us, which is our love for Tolkien. But when you find somebody who also appreciates really specifically what you care about, um, I remember when me and Mercury first met, that connective tissue was Sauron because we were both absolutely obsessed with him too. <laughs> These are poor little meow meow. It's fine. Meow it's meow fine. Meow. Exactly. Sauron's <laughs> your poor little meow meow, and Isildur's my poor little meow meow, and they have beef, so it's great. <laughs> um, but it was just it was it was just so heartwarming to you know finally be able to connect with people about something that I cared really deeply about, and which I had previously felt sort of like that I had almost been shut out of parts of fandom because others didn't share that interest. So I think that was something that really, that was a really nice thing. Yeah, absolutely. And so Ken, I, I think you brought up a really interesting point, which is, you know, the okay, we're, we're amongst people that know a lot about the legendarium, I'm gonna assume. But for like in the yieldy days, the normal, like a normal fan might just know the main text, right? And you have to come to a place like Oxymood to get this extra stuff. Well, all of a sudden now we have all of these mass, um, mass big uh, media projects that are coming out that are like starting with the legendarium, right? So I guess they're offering these very obscure 
entry points for for new fans, like for young for the youngy kids who maybe even haven't seen the Peter Jackson things. Like, can you imagine them starting with the Rings of Power? That's crazy. That's crazy because that's so different than I think all of our experience of like I read The Hobbit and then I read this and then it let you know we are all we are all I think because of our ages we're on a certain path. And all of a sudden, there are all these new pathways opening, right? Um, so I guess my question was, do you think that like this increased legendarium literacy for a quote unquote maybe average fan, is that, is that going to change Tolkien engagement? And if so, like, and if so for the better, what do you think? Um, I think it's going to, I don't think it's going to change Tolkien engagement. We did an interview a couple of years ago with Dawn Wellstum, um, who founded the Silmarillion Writers Guild. She's fantastic. She had put this survey, the, the fan fiction, Tolkien fan fiction survey out, where she was talking to all these people in the, in the Tolkien fan fiction writing community, asking, how did you come into the community? What, what do you write about? Where did you, why do you write about it? And all these really interesting questions. And she's been doing it for years. And... It's a super interesting survey. If you've never looked at it, I, I really recommend it because it's fascinating to see what drew people in and then what keeps them in the community and what are they interested in doing there. And one of the things that I bring up every time we talk about this is this spike. Every time there's a media project related to Tolkien, uh, the, the Lord of the Rings movies, the Hobbit movies, and I'm sure the, the One Ring show, there's this enormous spike of new people coming into the fandom, and it tails off as these things end, but there's also a spike of people that go, of those people that start reading the deeper material. Sure, they read The Lord of the Rings, but then some of those will then go and read the histories and the, the Lost Book of Lost Tales and all these other things. And I think that the biggest change is gonna be you're gonna see people who, that, that tail spike of people that go into the deeper material is gonna be bigger, yeah. which I think is really exciting because uh, certainly for, for me, the whole reason we started After Beth was because we wanted people to engage with that other material. I love Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, but for my personal taste, I think that's where the, the really juicy bits are in Tolkien's writing is in the, the Silmarillion and in the other papers. And so I think it's really exciting that people will be exposed to the depth of that world and will be encouraged by these properties. I also wanted to drop Don Walsh-Thuma as well, um, because... Um, one thing I've really noticed, so in the Tolkien and Diversity Seminar, Dawn Walsh-Thuma did a paper on fandom, as she does. And one thing she said really stuck with me. And she said, the best close readers are fans. No one is a better close reader than a fan. And that's completely true. And I think one thing that we're going to see, and we've already been seeing, and it's just going to keep getting more and more so, is that fan scholarship is outpacing published scholarship by far. Um, you have people who, because the, the barriers are low and the turnaround is high, it's accessible, it's easy, you can just put it in and it's out right away. Whereas with published journals, it has to go through peer review, it has to be in an academic language, it takes about a year or more for anything to actually get out, and the conversation isn't active. It's not a live conversation that's happening. It's happening very slowly. Uh, whereas on digital media, that everything we're doing here, it's quick and it's easy, and these people are smart. These kids are smart, people who are my age are smart, all of you are smart, just as smart as any academic, without the barriers. And like one of the things, like there's a, a friend of mine, uh, Cameron Borqueen, I believe I'm pronouncing her surname correctly. We're both people who do a lot of Sauron work. 
and we've realized that everything we're doing in an academic sphere is just stuff that all of the fans already know. And they've been discussing for years, for, dec for a decade now. And we're just now putting it in academic terms. It's, we're, the academic journals are gonna get outpaced and they're gonna get left behind. Yeah, yep. no, that's so true. That is a really good point. Mercury, do you think that, 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 that some of this is driven because this younger generation grew up with new media? Like they, this, this has always been part of their lives in a way, right? So maybe it's, it, I, we hear it again and again, I don't use Twitter because it's weird or I don't use blah, 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 blah. but they grew up with it. They've had it literally their entire life. It's, it's not as much of a leap to, to get out there. Do you think that's, do you think that helps at all? What do you, do you think that there's an effect on that? I mean, I think there is, I definitely think there is. It's people want to say their piece and they don't have, I think, and I say this as someone with ADHD who has a very short attention span, young people will not have the patience for journal process. They just won't have the patience for it. It takes too long. It's not worth it when they can just as easily say what they're trying to say on new media. I think um, it makes me think of actually a great comments that for those of you who attended Bear McCreary's Q&A yesterday, there had been a question about his use of TikTok because uh, he recently started up an account, go follow it, it's very good. Um, but he, the thing is that Bear, he writes these really detailed, intensive technical blog posts that unpack his work incredibly well, and they're on his website. But the thing is to actually connect with people who are on these new media platforms, he has to be able to, like Murky was saying, adapt to attention span and the way that that has changed over time and the speed with which people, you know, utilize things like Twitter and things like TikTok. So he was saying how like, yeah, it may not be like the most like uh, in depth or like accurate or whatever representation of the ideas I'm trying to convey, but it's catching people's attention. It's getting them interested. It's getting them to make those connections between the work that I'm producing and the visual. And I think the visual is also another, another aspect that is a big part of like new media, like Twitter, for example, such a good platform because it can accommodate both text and uh, visuals and do those in short bite-sized elements and I think that's a big reason why it appeals to a lot of people and why they're able to engage with a lot of both like less serious but also much more serious and scholarly ideas um, about the legendarium through these platforms um, like Mercury was saying with the scholarship with um, Tim Bolton started this hashtag talking Tuesday and I have uh, like you know people in the community like Beric the horse that's their username I don't actually know their actual name he, he's Beric they do a lot of neighing <laughs> he does yeah, a lot of neighing he introduces yeah. his tweet with a neigh and They're then great. the rest of it um, <laughs> and I love Beric so much and Beric is very supportive by the way of like anybody who's like producing like content and work and I love it because like stuff like say that talking Tuesday hashtag like Beric has been putting out these lovely little like short threads sharing ideas and like really well argued ideas and it's just so quick and it's so accessible and this is actual like it's scholarship it's scholarship like sharing ideas about say when there was the the first day was a theme about war and Beric did this amazing thread about horses in war because Beric is horse so his focus was on horses it was like a really well argued interesting thing about the use of horses in world war one how that relates to like Tolkien and his use of horses and I was just so like excited by it because it wasn't in a journal, it wasn't in a conference, it wasn't whatever, it was a thread, but it was, it was Tolkien scholarship. And it was so nice to like see that disseminated. Shout out as well to Harry Daly Rings of Power who recently released a podcast episode, go listen to it, about um, Oppenheimer and uh, comparing it to how power is treated in the legendarium, both conceptually and in terms of objects like the Rings of Power, not in an allegorical way, but in a way of like unpacking like thematically. And again, 
this is scholarship. This is Tolkien scholarship. And it's going out on a new media platform because he's cultivated this beautiful community through new media. Um, and it's reaching a lot of younger Tolkien fans who are now able to engage with this stuff in the form of his, his, his release as a podcast as well. So they're able to engage in a way that um, taps into what they're interested in, how they can best receive information visually, quickly, audio while they're on the go. It's, um, it's fantastic. It's wonderful to see this like flourishing of, um, of, of scholarship from new voices as well. That doesn't maybe seem like scholarship because it's in a non-traditional way, but it actually, in its, in its essence of itself and in its content, it really is. So I know it's just, it's, 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 it's been an explosion and I've been really happy to see it. I agree. And even in your, um, uh, in your wigs this morning, you, you showed <laughs> um, a thread that you had done and then oh. that had, you know, then that was the seeds for this wonderful uh, presentation today. So I'm sorry, Jude, you I, were gonna? Well, I think that's a really important point that with new media, it's, it's fast and it's accessible and it attracts attention. But I think one of the parts that's most valuable is the way that it is, uh, it's community driven as well. New media doesn't work if it's just one person shouting into the void. Uh, it works because it's community driven. Um, you produce a thread and somebody bounces off of it and then somebody else sees it and says, that would make a great paper topic. And someone says, I should write that. And then reaches out and people build things and some random person is driving by and says, I didn't even know you could do Tolkien scholarship and goes off and researches it. And I think that is something that really, for me personally, I think is really exciting because that was how I found this. Some, I, my wife saw a random tweet about Signum University and that I fell into this whole world. And there are so many people out there, I think, that are going to, you know, they see Rings of Powers on TV and they see a random thread about it. And in the comments, there's all this great discussion and that drags them into this community. And that I think is one of the real powers of new media is that these communities have always existed. There have been fan, fan zines going back decades, but it is always, it's been harder to find those communities. Uh, going back to what Marcel was saying, and I think that's one of the, the perils of relying on one single platform is you are in danger of losing those communities and those connections when you depend on a platform that's owned by a petulant man baby. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I think being aware of your followers and your community and being prepared yeah. to, to flee to other ships, I think is important because those communities are such an important piece of the value of, of these new media uh, connections that we've built. Absolutely, definitely. And I think um, I was discussing this with Mercury earlier as well, but how the something that I found really valuable about sharing these ideas on new media is the fact that, so like, you know, when, when, when we do academic conferences, we, we bring first drafts of projects, we bring pieces of projects because we're getting feedback from our, our peers. We're sharing these ideas, we're getting questions, we're expanding, and then we turn it into articles. New media is basically like that because we share threads. I remember doing this thread about, it was like a 20 tweet defense of Isildur because I take 
great umbrage with the way he was represented in the Peter Jackson films. Um, and uh, it was just a huge, it was a huge defense of, of him and the directorial intention. And there was a comment from a guy saying, really appreciate the time he took to do with this. I completely disagree though. And he, but he shared a wonderful like insight about how he interpreted the directorial intent. And I just remember reading that and thinking, this is exactly what would happen if I did this at a conference. Because what I'm doing here is I'm sharing, I'm sharing scholarship. It's like the first draft of an idea of a defense of Isildur. Um, and here's somebody who's debating that with me. And I'm like, oh, this is doing exactly the same thing that we do in, in, in a conference. So it's, it's, it's also just changing the entire format of how we conduct scholarship in this day and age. And I thought that was really exciting, but it's also, again, like what you were saying, Jude, um, it means that it's very important for us to have community resilience um, because the platforms are entirely out of our control. We don't own the platforms, which is why, you know, say like AO3, it's a very specific niche, it's fan fiction archive, but it's important that we own that archive, the fans own that archive, we're not beholden to man babies. Yeah. yeah. I, I, well, and this is something that's been, I've been wondering about for a little bit, is how do you, so, um, and maybe I can direct this SR towards you because we, we're kind of thinking about your, what you did with wigs today and your amazing Elendil um, post that you've done. I guess my question is how do we, um, preserve these things? How do, we, how do we preserve scholarship that comes in this form? Because it is, it's digital ephemera in a way, right? We all know we've like labored over a blog post and then you're done and then it's gone. And we're like, is anyone ever gonna look at it, right? So how do we, how do we make sure like a tweet, a tweet thread like this yeah. survives in perpetuity? I, I don't know, is it screenshotting? Like I don't, that's, that's the one thing that, that feels worrying to me that like if Twitter, you know, if the ship goes down, all of those are gone, right? What do you think? Do you have any thoughts? How do you do it, maybe? I, like, that, that is really interesting. And maybe we can bounce to Mercury after this, because we were also kind of talking about this earlier. Um, but I think for me, a big thing is to be able to, like, say that I have the content on different platforms is the first thing. Um, so, like, currently I have, like, say, you know, like, my threads on Twitter. Um, and I'm trying to, like, I, I do have a YouTube channel, um, but I've not updated in a while, but I was thinking reviving it by sharing these ideas in a video format mm -hmm. and using those to direct people to say somewhere where I've self-hosted these ideas, somewhere where I have control. Um, so there probably wouldn't be any organic traffic to those places, but if I'm able to direct people from other platforms, then at least the actual original text will be preserved somewhere that I control as much as is humanly possible. Yeah. Um, and then you know people can be directed to it, but I think it also it also is sort of part of the larger conversation about um, about uh, physical versus digital media and preservation of. I mean, like this is the whole like the the whole one of the big reasons of you know the strike, the fact that media gets created and then it gets taken down off the internet three months later and nobody's able to access the work after, which is absolutely devastating. Like you're losing pieces of art, and because that work hasn't been translated into physical media for like what like almost a decade now, like I mean. There's no, there aren't any like CD or DVD shops anymore, which is wild. Um, we don't even have a DVD player in our house anymore. We moved house recently and I went home and we didn't take the DVD player. I know. Oh no. And I was like, we still have the DVDs, <laughs> so how are we going to play them if we don't have the player? So. <laughs> but, um, but it's like a real worry though, right? It is a real worry, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. So I'm like, this is kind of why like maybe eventually at some point I would like to possibly like just print my things, even just for myself to have them there because I mean you like what if there's another Y2K scare no? <laughs> you know yeah. or something but like I would rather I would I'd rather maybe like have those but I think other than that able to say that I have the originals hosted somewhere and then just use these other in the in the vein of digital marketing use it to tra drive the traffic in that direction yeah, yeah.
and actually, so I used to be, uh, my field used to be museums before I took a sharp right turn, or left turn in my case. Took a really sharp left turn, um, and it's a really ongoing conversation in museum studies is that we are currently in a digital dark ages uh, because everything is digital. And if there is an apocalyptic event, if something terrible happens, there will be no record of everything that we do. And the future generations will have no idea what we were doing because it's not, none of it's physical. So I highly recommend everyone have printed copies of stuff for future generations. They will thank you tremendously. Um, but one thing that I found really um, difficult, you were passing to me and now I'm trying to like remember what specifically it was that I was saying. Um, <laughs> but um, one thing that I find really difficult is the um, restrictive nature of journal rules. So there are a lot of journals, that's what it was. So there are lots of journals that won't take publications that have been posted anywhere else. That includes Twitter, that includes blog posts. So anything that you have shared on the internet for a wider population is off the table for a published journal because it's been published elsewhere. And that just needs to be scrapped. That rule needs to be completely scrapped because in my, in my ideal world, what I think actually people should be doing is you should have your journal articles, but you should have either the author of that journal article or someone on staff at your journal write an accessible blog post version of that journal article or a tweet thread of the highlights of this journal article. And if people really want to read it and read the citations and get the scholarship, they can go to the journal article. Yeah. But they have the accessible version of it. And I think that's what we should be going towards, not what we should be doing. And one thing that would be amazing, actually, if someone actually started a journal of fan scholarship, wow. where people who have, that would be amazing. Yeah. And like, it doesn't need to be super peer reviewed, it just needs to be edited, because it's fan scholarship. And so you, someone has written a really amazing tweet thread, it has 2000 likes, hey, do you want to get that published? Just trans turn it into a blog post style format, we'll publish it. And that would be a great way to save these things, as long as it has, as long as it has the sort of disclaimer at the top, this isn't peer reviewed, by the way, right? you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just so you're being upfront. Marcel, this is this I think this is an area that you do really well because you've got a very active blog that you've had for a long time and you've built on it over the years with 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 your Twitter following and then also with your podcast that you've been doing now. Right. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about your experience, like archiving your work over the years well, and how as, you, as Mercury said, it's yeah. not only well, it's obviously museums, but, you know, any librarian or archivist in this room or around here. Is, is screaming illness, you know, in there and on yeah. their inside because the the long term uh, storage of information uh, it's basically come and gone. So a microfiche, some people may laugh at it, but the thing is really, 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 really durable, right? You will be able to uh, access any microfiche in decades of time; it's still there. So it's really an ongoing process, and the question is, how are we going to save the stuff? I mean, I've, I'm doing the newsletter and uh, you know the Roving Ranger about the latest things. But I know, having been with the Lord of the Rings film trilogy at the time, and having been very active in the community at the time, and the websites and the forums, I mean, Lord of the Rings Plaza, some of you people may remember the name, was one of the best scholarship, in a sense, places in the world. And that is gone because something, you know, hacked it, and then you got a virus and whatever, and it's gone. 99, almost 99%, I would say, of all the Tolkien places on 2001 to 2003, 
is gone, including the official Lord of the Rings film trilogy website, I know. which at the time used Flash and it was the <laughs> best of all websites. No, it was, it was a really cool website. It was informative. They had this short that what you would call, you know, a YouTube short today, yeah. 60 seconds about background, you know, the, the, the content, the stuff that was on there was fantastic. And it's gone not because of the technological, technological problems or maybe Flash is not good anymore, but because Warner Brothers said, nah, we're going to pull in a lot of the rings, starts trilogy, shop. So it's gone because Warner Brothers took over all the rights, all the merchandising, all the sales, and it's gone. And you can, and you know, the only thing that keeps us alive is the Internet Archive. Right. Wayback so, Machine. And the, the Wayback way back Machine, machine is, a is gift. that that is yeah. a gift that keeps on giving. So if anyone is hasn't heard about it, they're being sued both by the music industry, both by the publishing industry. Uh, because during the pandemic, they uh, instigated uh, a new, you know, you could borrow loads of stuff. And the publishers, both and the music industry, are against people being lent from an internet library. So they're suing their bots off right now. So if you have a five bucks to spend on the legal rights, please do spend money. And because they want to shut them down. And that is the online archive right now, at least for the English speaking world, that we have. And if we did, hadn't, didn't, you know, there is nothing. It's all, all gone. I have some of the stuff saved on some storage, some some disk somewhere. Probably I'm not be able to use that because I don't have the computer anymore to work on that disk drive. Mm -hmm. So I would have to go to university or a library that is specialized in long-term storage. Um, so that is actually the, the technology, which is one of my interests very much, is how to preserve all the great stuff that we've had in the last 20 years. Because it started out with you know Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, the film, the successes, the technological revolution, and this I keep you know, repeating. Uh, and if, if you don't save it in any shape or form that is accessible five years later, some of the websites and film sites and publications seen five years ago are gone now. And it's just ridiculous how fast these things disappear. Yeah. The, 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 the internet is growing and the number of earls, you know, websites singly, but it's not growing exponentially because it's dying. On the other end of it, all of the sites are disappearing. Yeah. So uh, that really is a huge issue. And if we didn't have like AO3, which is one of the best things in the world to have that and independently. The, the cross example would be everyone has you know, heard of fandom, fandom.com, which is this huge connection of fan wikis on all different things. Those used to be single individual fan run wikis. It used to be a non you know, nonprofit organization trying to sort of organize things. And then someone realized, well, if we have all the fantasy and science fiction wikis in the world and put them together and start splashing banners on it, we can mon make money out of it. Now, some of the, I think it's website number eight or nine in the world in the terms of visitors, is now a for-profit company. Because why? Guess what? Fantasy and science fiction has become valuable. Yeah. We're making money now. It's no longer a bunch of nerds. Yeah. We're billionaires now. <laughs> so, you know, it's the money coming in and all of these things that, with all the opportunities that we have, that is one of the side effects yeah. that I don't like at all. I will also add, if, if you see a website that you think is really interesting, pop it on the Wayback Machine immediately. Yeah. It is super easy to do. You just pop it in the link and it saves it forever, or as long as they have the access to it, but theoretically yeah. forever. Yeah, um, Marcel mentioned AO3. Do, maybe do, does one of you want to just tell in case people don't know what AO3 is? Because I think that I think what you're saying, Marcel, about something that was becoming monetized, AO3 went the other way. And yeah, so please, exactly. yeah. yeah, can you introduce it to, to everybody? Well, it's... I think it's the biggest database in the world. I think they recently made this little crunching, number crunching thing. It is a huge collection of fan fiction from all over the world in a number of stories that you can't really possibly imagine. 
uh, what they managed to do is to remain independent. That is, it is fandom run. It's one, I think, the Hugo and other stuff in recent years. Hugo 2019. Yeah. And it is one of the best websites, uh, not only on fan fiction, but generally fandom studies itself. And they decided to remain independent. So it's done by fans, for fans, and the ability to do research on it. And they didn't become commercial. It's a huge, huge effort to keep this sized database that's, I usually always say it's the World of Warcraft database, it's much better than anyone. Uh, but AO3 is much bigger and much better and much faster. So that fan fiction archive is absolutely amazing. And I'm always, I'm so, I've been fearing for years they would, they would go commercial because it costs a huge amount of money to keep this stuff uh, running. But obviously fans are there enough and money enough to keep it that way. The other thing is really fandom that turned from being independent into a for-profit company. Damn. Yeah, that's archive of our own in case anyone doesn't know about that. Um, I, I, I think Mercury, you touched on this a little bit when you were saying, you know, can we take a journal article and can we turn it into different, different types of new media? One of the challenges of new media is that the algorithms themselves the what they favor changes, right? We've seen that over the years. YouTube used to be little short videos and now they actually would rather you make longer videos, right? So I guess my question to this group of creators are, do you, you all use, you are all, three of you are like very prolific bloggers and Twitter and all these different things. Um, do you, how do you think about algorithms? Is that like something you're trying to, are you playing the algorithm game? Does that dictate anything of your process when you're putting stuff out there? I mean, I don't at all, um, but that's because I'm very aware of the fact that given the work that I do, I have a target on my back. Um, I will always have a target on my back because people literally want me dead for this. Like, I'm not joking. People literally want me dead for the work I'm doing. Um, and. I'm aware of that. So I actually don't want a huge amount of attention. Um, so actually what the silver lining for me of Twitter kind of dying is that I've had a lot less engagement, but you know, the people who actually want to hear what I have to say are still engaging with me and my mental health is doing a lot better. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I know the algorithms are valuable, but it doesn't really, I don't care. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. the problem with the algorithm over the last few years is that it definitely has become not about uh, meaningful engagement. It's about engagement. It's raw throughput. And uh, you see that particularly in places like uh, TikTok, where you have a significant amount of traffic in that is, let's make something awful that you will watch simply so you can then be offended by it and say so. Uh, and these kind of like videos are specifically exploiting the algorithm, which wants you to be uh, engaged enough to stick around and then yell about it. And this like rage click, rage bait kind of uh, based algorithm is really unhealthy uh, for the communities, but is really good for the platform. And uh, that has been true on a lot of platforms. It was true on YouTube for a really long time. Um, it's super true on TikTok. Uh, with Twitter, it was true as well. Um, in a slightly different way, you had these, this like hashtag dogpiling and all these various problems. Uh, so for our case, I've always said that I'm, we make Atherbeth for two people. We make it for ourselves and if other people enjoy it, that's fantastic. But I've never made any attempt to like push our, us in, you know, on an algorithm or anything. 
Um, but I don't think I would want to. Um, I think in many cases, the algorithm is, if you're trying to put content in front of a whole bunch of people, the algorithm, you, you, you are forced to deal with the algorithm. Um, otherwise, I think it's a, it's a, it's a demon that you have to ra wrestle with and you don't approach it if you, if you don't have to. I just, I honestly, I don't really deal with the algorithm because my, my experience with it has been that it favors the weirdest things. Like I, I don't really use hashtags anyway. One, because of exactly what Mercury was saying about preventing dogpiling. Also, because I just don't like them aesthetically. <laughs> so I'd rather just have my, my texts on my... <laughs> the hashtag. <laughs> It's such Absolutely a cool, not. That's such a cool. That's such a cool reason. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it's messing with the vibe of my tweet. It'll true. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. it turns a different color, and then yeah. it's your brings it. Yeah. Okay. It also yeah. takes up word count. It takes up word so, count. No. You have to be strategic. Word economy. So, word economy. Word economy. Exactly. <laughs> so I didn't do th for that reason, and also just because when I do without hashtags or anything, it's just the weirdest things become like actually take off. My beautiful detailed scholarly threads will get like maybe like 20 likes, maybe like 100 if I'm lucky. And then the one tweet that I make admiring Lloyd Owen's face gets three and a half thousand likes out of nowhere. <laughs> so I'm like, I just, I can't, I can't choose what gets, what gets, yeah. you know, what gets put in front of people's faces and what doesn't. So I'm just like, I'll just tweet honestly and genuinely, whether it's something serious, whether it's something silly, and it'll find the people it's meant to find and they'll enjoy it. And that's good enough for me. Really. Could I just, because I, I'm really desperate to mention, I hope that I pronounced the name correct, John Scalzi is a science fiction fantasy author. Yeah. And he's come up with this brilliant idea. I think it's his term. It's called enshittification. <laughs> and it's a lovely, it's a lovely concept. Very shortly put, and I hope I'm summarizing correctly, is basically our world and social media are ruled by, you know, the tech bros who came up with that particular app. And particular, I mean, Facebook was a stalker software mm -hmm. by some dude who wanted to meet ladies somewhere in Harvard, you know, dorms and stuff. And now it's the biggest media conglomerate in the world. But the thing is, those tech bros come up with the apps that we're using. And what he's saying with initiativeification as a capitalist critical system is the companies came up with brilliant ideas. Amazon is the place where everyone is shopping. So they were for free. You get delivery. You get all this stuff. It was so easy. All the dealers were coming in so you can buy everything on Amazon. That was for free. It was cool. Everyone was in. The moment they became this sort of monopoly, they started to twist on the screws, right? So the dealers had to give up 5%, 10%. Delivery cost a couple of bucks, at least in Europe, that's the way it is. And the same thing happens with all the other things. Twitter was open, was really nice. People could come in, whatever. And then the hate platforms are starting to come in. So basically the concept is someone comes up with a perfect thing, comes up with the social media app that really rules the world, whether it's Uber, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Twitter, whatever. And then when they have the monopoly, when they have a huge enough following, they start twisting and, and squeezing the people because now as a small dealer you have to sell on Amazon there is no other way you have to go via Amazon and they tell you what to do so on Apple or on Spotify if you're a musician if you want it or not you have to be there there's no other chance and that is really think one of the biggest issues right now is we have those social media channels but actually they're really limited we don't have those and, and they are not independent anymore we have monopolies from hell and that that is one of it used to be the, the social media re used to be really open. That's why Mastodon and all the others, the Fediverse is trying to counter that. But because the numbers are against them and the algorithm is also an element of tightening the screws on unshittification, 
I'm not doing that. I know that I have to post three pictures or two videos every night on Instagram, and then I would have had 50 or 100,000 followers by now. I know how to rig the algorithm, but it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and, and that is really unfortunate because let's face it, on Facebook, 90% of the Tolkien fan pages are shit because they've been taking art, uncredited, posting it, reposting it. Yeah, we love Tolkien. This is, and I'm, I've been trying to sometimes state, you know, well, it would be really nice to credit Yanni Dolphin or Anka Eismann or Emmeline Austin and all those great illustrators and writers, and then they block you. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, and they can stop that conversation. Why so the whole, yeah. we haven't even touched on copyright and trademark. These things don't even do it. Don't because then we'll be here for until six o'clock. <laughs> but it's one of the issues. Yeah. And 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 fan scholarship is in the danger of that. If you write great threads, someone has taken it right. and publishing somewhere else, and you will have to find out where it is and where it comes from, and they will just take it. Yeah. And that is one of the huge issues as well. It's independence but also in the danger of being abused. I will say also, this is another place where fandom is actually, another place where fandom is outpacing the quote unquote real world is in the art market. Um, because fandom, I call it guerrilla market, the guerrilla fan art market, um, because, and the guerrilla illustration market is because the high art world and the art market in general, and my museum education was in art history, and this is why I know all of this stuff. The, um, the art market and the art world is very, it, it's an echo chamber. It, the critics create what's popular and they raise the prices of the art and then the art gets raised and it's a circular issue. They don't care about illustration. They don't like illustration. It's low art. It's not worth their time. But the thing is illustration artists and particularly fan artists have found ways to make money without their help, without the art market's help, without big art market telling them what to do. Because they know two things. One, they know that fans will buy their work. That is the most important thing. They know they have Patreon, they have Etsy, they have Redbubble, they have Society6. There is a market for it and they know it and they've used it without the art market supervision. And then on top of that, they've also done this thing which I find really amazing, which is good faith work. They know that if they can produce fan art for free, people will pay for it. And that is an incredible thing that fandom has done in that you can have a Patreon and say, I'm doing all of this work for free. I'm not doing it for a patron. I'm not doing it for a commissioner. And you love it enough that you will give me money. That is ideal. That is absolutely ideal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, okay, so we're, I think we started off being like, yay, new media, but let's, I, I think it's good that we're kind of circling around the like, ooh, new media, sorry. Because it is, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's very much a double-edged sword, right? Yes, absolutely. So, let, so let's maybe like explore that for a minute. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword. It helps people find diverse voices and, and feel more connected in many ways. And, and, uh, but it also uh, enables very toxic behavior, gatekeeping, even worse, right? Absolutely. So I just, I guess I wanted to ask, you know, anyone who feels like they would like to step in and, and speak, but uh, in your view, what has the impact of new media been on diversity and representation in Tolkien spaces? If you don't it's a tough mind question, me right? starting it. Please. Um, I've written a good answer for this, and it's much more eloquent than anything I could come up with off, off the cuff, so I am going to read this. Um, I think that the impact is immeasurable, absolutely immeasurable. Um, the Tolkien sphere has always been diverse. Don't listen to anyone who tells you it hasn't. Um, but it's also always been a white, bo a white boys club. It's been both of these things at the same time. Um, but with new media, uh, while it has also given vocal 
platforms to fascists and the worst people in the world, it has also given that same platform and that same power uh, and footing to parts of the community that want to fight for our place in this community. It is absolutely that great equalizer. So even though the worst people have this platform and this megaphone, the best people have it too. And it is quite equal, which you would never have outside of this method. Um, while the hate might be violent and terrifying, the love is extremely strong. Um, and I wouldn't be here, as I said, I wouldn't be here without this loving community and these new medias. Um, even though I know that I have a target on my back and even though friends of mine have received death threats, uh, the incredible support and love in the network that I have is so much louder and so much more valuable. I do it for them, I do it for all of them, I do it for all of you. This is why I do it. Um, and without the network that we have now, we would never know who wants us there, only who wants us gone. Oh. Yep, that's beautifully said. Thank you so much for... Hence why I had to read what I wrote. I was, never gonna, I was never gonna spit out something that good. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is an incredibly difficult subject and it's something that we all see and you know, we all cringe at when it happens and it feels almost too big to stop, right? But it, it is gonna take all of us kind of coming together and, and yeah, saying we don't want you anymore, goodbye. Thank you so much, no more. And I think that's what we've tried to do with, with our podcast. Uh, we're, I'm a white man in Tolkien. That puts me in a position where like, I am very careful not to speak about experiences I haven't had, but what I can do is try and provide platform for people that have had those experiences. Uh, and that's what we've tried to do is we've tried to put our, our platform out there for other people. And we've tried, tried to uh, forward voices uh, that are doing good in that community, in our community, and uh, support the people that are forwarding the diversity. And I think my experience has been, for as long as I've been a part of the, the academic fandom part of the Tolkien community, is that it's incredibly accepting and it's incredibly warm and it, it, it wants everybody to have a place in it. Um, I have never found it to be those regressive elements, I think, are found, are a part of the common pop culture right now that just want to hate things. And they, they come out for anything. And I don't think that our community is different than any, anywhere else in that regard. Yeah. Um, and I was gratified. The, the, that Tolkien and Diversity Conference was so good because I felt so uh, validated that this is what I had, this was the, the Tolkien community that I had seen and that I had known and watching my community step up and say, this is who we are, this is who we want to be. And all you people, all you mad, sad people can just shut it uh, was really great. And the response to it has been so good. There has been so many fantastic new voices that have felt empowered like yourself who have come up out of out of as a consequence of that um obviously it didn't have an ideal trigger but uh i think the the consequences of that of that those events have been really ultimately very positive and a shout out to will sherwood for doing that Absolutely. honestly 100 percent that that conference definitely shows you the pattern that all of the fandoms really right now have if there is a topic that seems to be 
you know, let's use the word woke or whatever, anything you want to call it, the, the bunch of people that really make money from, you know, as Elon Musk recently paid out the first, you know, bunch of dollars to all those, everyone in there on that list of people getting money from Twitter for advertising and for being engaging, all of them were all right websites. Yeah. So up to the conference, they will yell, they will shout, they will get engagement, they will make money of being shit. And then when the actual conference happens and everyone is really enjoying themselves and it's great work, it's great scholarship, you will have a publication afterwards, you will have interaction and all the community work, they're gone. Like that, because the attention is no longer there. They're not, they don't care about the topic, they don't actually have an argument to make that, let's make talking conservatives or Christian or whatever. The basic, what they will have is they want to have attention. And that works because we have new media, we have the huge size new media, and they're simply abusing it. And my, my issue with that is, is there any chance of us trying to get in, get a, get, a, get a wedge in, in the beginning? How can we try to get the attention away from those who would simply peddle with hate? And that is so difficult because they have huge platforms. Like, let's, let's you know, name Nerd Rotic, someone like him. <laughs> he, is, he, is, he has a huge, huge followership and a huge platform. And to get against that uh, seems almost impossible by now. So if anyone has any brilliant ideas, let's hear them, please. I think it's, um, it's something I've had to deal with very practically for a long time. Um, I mean, I, I actually I had the honor of speaking on the very first panel that we did about talking and diversity in 2020 during Oxenmoot Online. And it's been a big concern of like a lot of what I've done. But I think my approach has changed over the years um, in terms of like how I approach, you know, uh, the, the, the line between engagement and uplifting. I think is one that we have to be always like paying attention to. And that's something that I think it came to the fore in a really practical way with the release of the Rings of Power because mine is a community that is under consistent attack for having the audacity to cast, you know, of people from a wide variety of ethnic backgrounds in the characters. And so something that we it, it's it's a constant debate within our community like how do we safeguard our members especially many of them who are new many of them who are from like this show is reaching people all over the world i was so excited that so i'm from singapore and i met the first other Singapore fan of like Rings of Power, who's not my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I was so hoping. Uh, <laughs> and that's how you met your mother. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, because she's the one who introduced it to me. But I met I met another another fan who also happens to be a Numenor fan, who's also from Singapore. I was like, this is amazing. And I've met people from so many parts of the world, from so many different backgrounds. Like the community itself is incredibly diverse. And I'm like, how can we? safeguard them how how can we how can we safeguard the community from this while also making sure that we you know cultivate a space of you know not not an echo chamber but a space that has a code of conduct of like you know respect and upholding values like positive progressive values of you know of of, of inclusivity and compassion and i think because we have to deal with this very practically um you know, to defend our community, to also defend the actors, because a lot of them engage with us very frequently on these platforms and they get pulled into it. And I hate when that happens, especially Ismail Cruz Cordova, who's amazing, amazing man. Follow him on Instagram if you don't, because he's always posting beautiful, um, like everyday, like affirmations and things. He's such a wholesome person. I hate that he gets dragged into this because of how passionate he is about the role. And something that we like, that we try and do is to, 
or at least nowadays are trying to focus on the idea of uplifting rather than engaging with those with, with, with the trolls and feeding that algorithm and feeding the money that they're getting off of this. It's as much like, because what they'll do is they'll drag us into, into their arguments and their debates. So it's just as simple as like, oh yeah, it pisses you off. It makes you really, really mad. And you just block straight away. You just block and you mute. You have a massive block list. The Musk's threat to like remove the block list is the main thing that might take me off the website. But while it's there, so far for me, that has been the best, like the best thing to, keep a community that you know it's we block the ones that we know are not engaging in good faith it's totally fine to have dissenting opinions to not like something about how something happened in like an adaptation or whatever and that's totally grand but you have to be engaging in good faith you can't be disingenuous you can't be there picking for a fight sea lining doing all of the nonsense tactics that people get to rile you up and generate engagement um, and that's why I think like the tactics that we have now of like, you know, blocking the people who aren't in good faith and, you know, not if like and, and debating everybody else. And, you know, if you don't like somebody, just mute them. You know, you don't have to block and cause drama. You just mute them. Keep a I, I think so far that's been the best way for us in our like little community, to, like tailor a space where we can be safe and we can uplift these voices. And um, while we sort of put these other voices to the side, they can have their little echo chamber. We're going to have a community here where we spend our time rather than spending it on them. We're going to spend it by like, look at this awesome art that somebody just made of Disa or like, you know, look at this really interesting post that somebody made connecting um, old, uh, old, like a Byzantine um, jewelry to the Numenor set design or something, you know, like uplifting those things, uplifting the newer fans, especially like we have a lot of like younger fans in the community now who come from diverse backgrounds and they are starting to like, you know, spitball ideas as well with theories. And they're on, on top of being from diverse backgrounds, they're young, which is a big thing that I feel like is a responsibility of us to be able to like safeguard that and create a space for them that is a safe one where they're able to, they're able to debate and they're able to test the waters and they're able to get this sort of like support to develop their ideas and their personalities as both fans and as people because they're still growing so i think that's a that's just like it's sort of it, it, in, in in a practical way it's something that we've been having to deal with in our community very very directly and intimately and i think that's kind of been our strategy so far uplift and block and to your point actually um if anyone was at my paper yesterday one of the things i talked about is this idea of mentor relationships and elders helping the younger in the community um, and i think that's kind of our job in a lot of ways, that's kind of our job is to make sure that the younger people who are coming in aren't scared off, aren't put in a position where actually this is not safe. I shouldn't be here. I can't engage. We want to make sure that they are safe, that they are welcome, that they are engaged. And then we have a, we have a vibrant community forever. I, I want to thank you all for your thoughts because that is it's a very difficult topic, right? And, um, and it's not something we're going to solve today, but I really, I really like these tools that you're giving us, right? Let's uplift and, and create a safe space. So I guess, you know, let's, let's start, kind of start to wind down a little bit. Does anybody have any thoughts about where, this, where things are headed in Tolkien and New Media? What's, what's happening? What's going on? Any big predictions for the next sort of five years? What do you uh, think? I think there's going to have to be a new somewhere new. I can't, I said it, I mean, I could be wrong. I said that Twitter wasn't going to last to Christmas last year and it's, here we are September and it's still here. Uh, I don't think it's going to make it to this Christmas. I could be wrong. Uh, we'll see, but I, I think it's a safe bet that Twitter won't be around for a whole lot longer. Um, but I think there will be successors, but I think what this has certainly taught 
us is to not be dependent on a single platform. Um, nothing is infrastructure. Um, for a very long time, Twitter was treated like internet infrastructure. Politicians used it and it was treated like it was always going to be there and it was safe, uh, despite the fact that it was a kind of a burning dumpster even then, but now it's an unstable burning dumpster. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a burning dumpster rolling down a hill towards <laughs> a civilian population. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I've, I, I think myself personally, and I, I see a lot of other people taking away from it is, uh, you can find me on this at this platform and this at this platform and go to this page to see all my other social links because connecting on multiple in multiple places I think is going to be, be where what you're going to have to do because otherwise I, I just don't think you can depend on any one place not as long as you have these you know I don't think the tech industry has our best interests at heart. Oh, uh, shocking. <laughs> yeah. Brand well. new information. Yeah. <laughs> Blowing your minds, I know. But uh, Strangely enough, one of the things that I have seen or believe for many, many years, uh, and I've seen quite a bit of resurgence, is the only thing that really belongs to you and it can use is your own blog, a newsletter, and maybe now a podcast. But watch out for it, don't rely on Spotify, don't rely on Acast or whatever they're called, they're buying each other, so you don't know what's gonna happen with that. They're closed off already, you have to be a customer, you have to get an account and stuff. So have your own website at your own host, get a newsletter that is for free from that host and get a podcast place where you can save your episodes too as your own. Because at the end of the day, Medium and Substack are also already burning fucking dumpsters, sorry. Uh, even if they are trying to anti-publicize that stuff. But newsletters have become a huge, huge thing. Mary and Pippin, what do they have? A podcast, because that is really working right now. Everyone is open like a podcast, including, of course, a video version of it, et cetera, et cetera. But try to st really stay independent. The moment Facebook falls apart or Telegram falls apart or whatever falls apart, your stuff is gone. Yeah, that's the point. That's, again, the, the, the storage issue, which you, you never will think about. But the moment that Spotify is hacked, yeah. let's have some fun. <laughs> so uh, I know it's, it's, it's really a silly, a very simple thing. But I, I've been keeping my blog for so many years at a, a German host, which is run by like a 50 old white guys who only do IT and do nothing else. The, the price is the same for 18 years. You don't get more space because... You don't need that kind of shit and hundreds of thousands of photos. You just get the same. If I want to have more storage, I have to pay five euros more a month. So basically, they are doing, have been doing that at the same time over, and it's reliable, and I can trust them. I, can tr I can't trust a huge conglomerate from the United States or China or anything. They will buy each other. Mm -hmm. Threads tried to get Twitter going. They started out nicely. Now they are crushed again, so that's not happening. Um, I'm on Blue Sky, a couple of us on Blue Sky. I have an invite code or two, if so anyone wants one. Yeah. You know, just Jeremy uh, Edmonds from the Tolkien Guide uh, is sharing sort of uh, the invite codes to Blue Sky. That it's really nicely happening. We have a huge Tolkien community growing there, so that seems to be a nice... But also keep in mind with Blue Sky, the reason why it's invitation code only right now is because it's actually still in beta. It's not a complete website at the moment, and that's why it's a little bit glitchy, and that's why it's invitation code only. Yeah. So be aware of that. That's why I don't really love it. I will say that's, that's one thing I do, I do like about this next generation of, of new media platforms is that they are based on distributed technologies like Mastodon, like Blue Sky. They're based on federated technology. So 
maybe Blue Sky doesn't end up being the one that sticks, but if that if their AT protocol is working, something else can use it. Um, I don't know that that one will work versus Mastodon's, but I think the the concept of there is a there is a social network protocol, and you own your presence on that protocol, and whether it's Mastodon or Blue Sky or whatever, and they can all kind of talk together, I think is an interesting idea. We'll see if it ever happens, but I think it's, it's interesting to me that multiple people are looking that direction and maybe someone will solve it. Remember when the internet was the wild west and we didn't have to worry about any of it? Yeah. <laughs> what we had to How worry about was come. like a virus because you clicked on something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, all right. Well, thank you. Uh, does anybody have any questions? We want to do like 10 minutes of questions, please. Right back to something Nick said right at the beginning, Nick could say about uh, social media actually being a incredible thing for somebody with ADHD. Yes. But then touching on things that you said about how the tech industry does now, my best interest at heart, and how uh, engagement, but not necessarily positive engagement. Like, I feel that, I mean, I'm very social media averse because it feeds the worst parts of my ADHD. I feel when it's actually making it worse. My ability to actually read a novel or even listen, watch some, I, I can't remember the last time I watched a movie all the way through it comes, is it? And I feel that technology and social media is is, is good like heroin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wondered what you, how you feel about that. Is it actually, is it as, it's a good thing. It feels in the moment, but is it maybe actually creating bad habits in terms of engagement. I think you need to have your uh, safety mechanisms intact. It is very much like, I think, probably like taking drugs. <laughs> because if you don't have, uh, so, so for me, for example, the entire time we've been having this conversation, I've been twirling a ring, keeping my hands occupied, and I can have a conversation and we can actually talk. Um, with things like social media, I will be aware, you just have to be aware. I think that's really what it is. You have to just be consciously aware of the fact that you can very easily fall down this rabbit hole and you'll be scrolling social media for uh, hours and hours and hours and then you've lost your entire day. Um, it is just, you have to be aware of what you're doing and you have to be consciously involved. Like for me, it works for my ADHD particularly because I can, a thought comes to me, I can put it out there in the world, I don't have to worry about it again. Or if I'm not able to focus on something, I can get all of my information really quickly from everybody that's just there very fast. Because one of the things with ADHD, it's fast. It's very, very quick, and social media is very, very quick. So it works very well together. But you do just have to know yourself, know your limitations, have safety mechanisms in place, and then I think it's a beautiful system. What this is, is neurologically speaking, it is a drug yeah. because the, the gratification center that we all live off, you know, eat sugars, eat chocolate, you know, do things we like, it will slowly but surely shorten the attention span. That's what it does. But every neurobiologist will tell you, you can unlearn that. You can start reading longer novels again. But that learning process, that is the one that we're not going for because we have this in our pocket. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It, is, it gives so much, it's so much scope to your life and so many opportunities. At the same time, it sucks. <laughs> I, hate, I hate this thing. I want to throw that brick at the wall every single day. And then I'm like, oh, cool. Someone wrote to me about <laughs> <Yep>. so, <laughs> someone, someone in a country you will, will never visit 
has, is engaging with you. It's amazing. But then also, oh God, it's a rabbit hole and I've fallen down the hole and I can't get back out. Yeah. The, that article about the horses in the First World War and me being a modern German history, historian about some people would argue that the number of horses the Allied forces has is the reason why they won because the Germans didn't have enough horses because they couldn't breathe fast enough. La la la. And I was and like, then goes, oh God, yes, please. Yep. And <laughs> yep. Two days later, I was like, fuck, there's a second world war. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, any other questions? Yeah, Brian? So I think Brian was asking a little bit about trolls and these negative comments that come through. Do, you, do our panelists have any um, uh, like methods that they use to kind of help with this? What's the best, best method for dealing with internet trolls? I think the quick one as a, a the technical term cis admissional age by male or why guy is, for me, it should be engaging. For me, it should be going for the discussion, trying to tell them, look, this is nonsense. This is the reason this is what we do because I come from a personal, from a position of privilege. I don't really have to fear that much. I'm a straight guy. I don't really care for all that kind of stuff. So I can argue. But if you're from a disprivileged per, you know, position, this is actually dealing with your safety and mental health. So that's what you go on. I mean, what I was just going to say is, because I, I think about this a lot, I don't think there is a right way. I think all of these ways are valuable uh, and there should be someone doing everything. Um, but it's not your job to be that person. Um, so I like that some of my friends are constantly making sure everyone knows that this is a bad faith argument. So one of my friends, Tim Bolton, one of the things that he does is he goes, this is a bad faith argument. This is a bad faith argument. This is a bad faith argument. So the people who are reading the threads know it's bad faith argument. Yeah. I don't have time for that. I don't have the energy for that. I don't have the mental space for that. And I, I personally think it is a bit feeding the trolls and actually that's what they want. They want attention. Yeah. Um, so there is a limit to that. And if you don't feed them, they go away. Um, but there is value to it as well. So it's, it, there, there should be some of everybody, I think. But yeah. Just, just to be clear, no one has a right to be threatened. Absolutely. Nobody has a right to be threatening. I do agree. Nobody has a right to be threatening. But there's also responses to other people being threatening. So I think that's where it gets a little blurry. Yeah. I think um, my, my, my main thought on it is that nobody has a responsibility to, to deal with it. If you personally feel up to, to facing it, that's great for you. But from a technological standpoint, uh, the best thing anyone can do is not engage. Mm -hmm. Because from a technological standpoint, that's what triggers the algorithm. That's what lifts it up. Uh, every like, every view, every response uh, shows that those are the things that the algorithm should be engaging with. Um, block and mute, move on. Uh, it may not feel as satisfying as saying, you're wrong, here's why. And there, I think there is an argument to say, and I think you're right in, in saying that there's an argument to say, I'm from a place of privilege. This doesn't harm me to, to argue with you. And it does show, like for other people coming down the thread, that these are bad arguments. But the, the cost of that is that it helps these, these actors stay afloat. And I think that's a cost benefit that has to be weighed. Just, sorry, just a quick example, uh, which is not quite the same, but the Gamescom, which is the world's biggest gaming convention, and you know, killer games, making people shoot children somewhere in the United States because you play killer games, so that's the direct link. 
it's been disproven for years and years and years. Everybody knows that killer games don't make you a killer. They will sometimes, when people already have their issues, be a moment of, you know, bringing them towards that. But there is, scientifically speaking, no comment. Last week before the Gamescom, the biggest German newspaper posted the question, do killer games bring young people, you know, to killing people? They know it is wrong. They have published pieces on this that is wrong. But it's the algorithm yep. that is happening in proper journalism. And they will do it because they need numbers. Absolutely. Um, I agree completely with that and with everything that Jude was saying, because that's been our experience, like in the Rings of Power community, for example, that it ends up feeding the algorithm to give these people engagement. And the best thing that you can do is really, if they are bad faith actors, and you develop a pretty good instinct for when people are bad faith actors, um, you just you block straight away. And I think it also also depends on kind of the community that you're trying to cultivate. And if you're trying to cultivate a community that focuses on, you know, on, you know, uplifting people and like, you know, having uh, having a certain set of like, say, more progressive values, then that is what you should be focusing on and directing all of your energy to that and making those things, you know, using the algorithm to bring those things up and just letting the rest, letting the rest die off because it, it will die off because of the way the algorithm works. I also think that like one thing to be cautious about when if if you do like because obviously none of this is prescriptivist and if you choose to you know fight back as like say like Tim does like that's also that's also valid and like that can be done. I think the caution there is not to drive the discussion towards people who are say if, if it's a discussion say about race towards people of the ethnic group that is being demeaned or degraded um this is an example i, I won't say who posted it um but uh there was a discussion about race in the rings of power ismail cruz Korzova was tagged into that and it there was a whole flood because it got yeah yeah you you, you remember the flood and it was so bad that he had to make a post saying please don't tag me into these posts. I see it and I see the vitriol and it makes me not want to do art anymore. And it was so heartbreaking. Um, the community organized hashtag around your appreciation day the next day to make him to, you know, make sure he knows that we care. But that's what we should be doing in the first place. We should be doing appreciation days for people who we know without so much like feeding the trolls. We say like, okay, we acknowledge there's a problem, but we're not going to talk about the problem because that's going to give them the opportunity to get a word in just because of the way the platforms work. Instead, what we're going to do is just prioritize being like, yes, I love this person so much. I love that adaptation, love that artwork. I love that story, like, yeah. And putting all the energy towards that rather than towards the trolls. And it can be like, again, if one wants to engage them, that's entirely your prerogative and that's grand. It's just, I think the, the thing to be cautious about therefore is if when engaging them, will you one, drive the algorithm to platform those posts further? Two, will you drive them towards other profiles or accounts or communities that could that are being like demeaned as part of that thing. So I think it's just it's it's a complicated issue. Again, it's not one size fits all in terms of the solution. But I guess those are just some things to like consider based on my own experience. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. Um, well, I want to um, thank you all so much for doing this. Um, if you have more questions, come up and, and talk to us individually. I'm sorry we don't have a ton of time left, but. Um, 
Uh, so we're all going to go home and we're all going to print out all of our great blog posts, Please. right? Print we're going to screenshot everything. We're going to save everything. it all in perpetuity. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you all so much for this. And thank you all for coming and being here. We're so, we're so thankful for all of you. So thank you. Big hand for these panelists. They're amazing. Thank you so much. So that was a panel that we did. Yay! That people showed up to, <laughs> which was probably the most surprising part of Oxenmoot. We'll talk about the other slightly less surprising parts. No, and thank you to everybody who came. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, right? Such a good panel. I thought it was a really fun panel. We had You did such a good job recruiting that group of people. Everybody on that panel was engaged with new media in some way. But we had a nice variety of users. Yeah. Marcel and, you know, kind of at one end and then Mercury and, and SR at the other. And you and I kind of spread across the middle, I think gave a really nice variety of points of view. And I think we we had a really good conversation. I really enjoyed doing it. I expected to be like paper bagging it nervous. And I wasn't because it was such an easy panel to talk to. That's great. I was so incredibly nervous. I didn't think I was going to be. Like, when I put it together, I was like, this is going to be great. And then I had, like, a major panic the night before, like, really sweaty. I was like, oh, my God. And then I was so sweaty the whole panel. Like, it was just the sweatiest girl there's ever been. So I'm apologizing for anybody. I was nervous up until we sat down. And then once we sat down, I was like, well, we're in the shoot now. Can't do anything. <laughs> I, I am powerless <laughs> at this point. I can yeah. all I can do is talk. And I don't know if you know this, listeners, but once I start talking, it can occasionally be hard for me to shut up. <laughs> but I did. You were great. I did. You'll notice in the panel, I did shut up quite a bit <laughs> and let other people talk, and it went fine. Yeah. No, you were brilliant. You were brilliant, Jude. You did a really. I. You know, like I'm not just saying that because you're staring at me, but you did a really great job. I thought you you presented. I like, was our fine, plan. which was you all I was aiming for. Yeah, everybody was amazing. <laughs> I was so you know, and we did kind of give the. I did give the panelists some ideas of what the questions were going to be, and I was just so thrilled by how they prepared. Um, I know Mercury had written out some things and found a poem that they really like. And wow, that just, I really appreciated all the work that you all did to get ready for that and, and to kind of just be so eloquent. So thank you. It was great. Yeah. Um, I, I was just, again, like, I'm so, I was really thinking, Jude, it was going to be like you, me, the panelists, and like nobody else in the room. I really had a like, oh no, can I pay people $20 to like pull them in like an old comedy show in, from the 90s? But thank God, like actually we had a really wonderful big crowd and I was so pleased. It was a packed house. It was, it was awesome. Wild. Yeah, that was so nice. The conversation was really good and wide ranging. We talked about yeah. what new media is good for, what, it's, what, what we've used it for. And that was really fun talking about all the ways in which each of us has used new media to engage with Tolkien scholarship primarily, but also the fandom. And then we had a really, I thought, a really productive, interesting conversation about the dangers of new media, specifically around like Rings of Power. And that was really, really interesting. And then the conversation that we had about the dangers with Twitter actively on fire right now a really interesting conversation about like what do you do when 
the platform you're using is being consumed like a pile of cocaine going up the nose of a temperamental white man. <laughs> yeah. What do you do then? Yeah. Uh, so it was it was a great conversation. Uh, and I hope that you listen when uh, I hope that a you listen to it. Yeah. Um, if you fast forwarded to this point, uh, that's fine. But I hope you go back and listen to it now. But I I really I really enjoyed doing it. And I really appreciate that all the work you put into organizing it. And a sincere thank you to all of our panelists for doing it. Yeah, definitely. So it was a great experience. And I really, I, I really enjoyed it. So awesome. Well, that's great. Well, and I think that there are some really great takeaways from that, that I actually think there are some things we can all do as people who produce things on mm-hmm. new media. You know, I think there were some excellent points about, you know, archiving your work because all of these, mm-hmm. these blog posts, yep. these podcasts, they can be taken away in a second, right? So finding a way to archive your own stuff so that you don't lose all of that scholarship that you've been doing and all those interactions is so important. I, I'm yeah. thinking about maybe trying to do like a summary of it and write it up and maybe see if I could put it online somewhere. I don't know if that would be useful, but I'd like to carry the work that all of the panelists did and the great points that they made and kind of carry it forward because I think there were some things that we should all be doing. You know, I think there were some really good takeaways. So that is my next thing is to kind of type up a summary of what it was or maybe like five takeaways we can all be doing right now to make our online new media Tolkien engagement better. So we'll see. It's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank, well, thanks again for for Jude for doing it, and thank you to everybody for listening, and and a big thank you to everybody who came online. And I'm so sorry again that it was so awful and hard to hear, but thank you again. There was some great stuff in the chat too. I really appreciate everybody's comments, so thank you for that. I have read all of yeah. them, so thank you. Should we transition to a little discussion of Oxenmoot as a whole? Yes. Okay. Yes, let's. Oh my God, I see him. We're almost back together. What's up? Ah! How are you? Nice to see you here in Oxford. Very tired. (sighs) Poor Jude. Jude just flew in. And boy, are his arms tired. (laughs) You okay? You alive? We'll get you some fortifying food and then you'll feel better. So, uh, Oxenmoot was dope. <laughs> Mic drop. That's kind of my my summary. Yeah. Despite choosing an absolutely atrocious flight and having wild jet lag in a super weird hotel room, it was fantastic. I had a great time meeting. That was the highlight for me. Like, I have a lot of specific stuff that I want to talk, you know, kind of briefly about, but... The part for me that was the most exciting was meeting people that I knew online. Meeting Mercury in person finally was such a pleasure. We've interacted periodically on Twitter, but getting to put a face to the name and also their absolutely tremendous presentation um, about queer marginality and chosen family in Hobbiton was one of my highlights. It was just such a good presentation. Oh, yeah. People have been talking about the way that hobbits, then specifically like the Baggins, is what they mean for queer people reading The Lord of the Rings. And it was the most succinct and powerful like summaries of that that I've ever seen. I can't recommend it enough. Anyway, but yeah, meeting all these people, some of them, I would sit down at a table and I would mention Atherbeth and they'd be like, oh, I listened to your podcast 
And after the second or third time, I didn't even say why. Like, <laughs> I got over it. And it was just cool to, like, meet people. Yeah, that was amazing. We met so many interesting people that were just interested in what we were doing and handed out so many buttons and so many cards and stickers. That was the real exciting part. Like, the panels were terrific. And I definitely have favorites, so we'll talk about those. But for me, the absolute highlight, and you have to understand, this is coming from someone who hates socializing <laughs> so much. But the highlight for me really was meeting all the people that even if they didn't listen to our podcast, were excited about the idea of it. We also met some of the people from our Discord that were super excited to meet us. That was awesome. Mm -hmm. Some of our like dedicated listeners that came up to us and introduced themselves was such a cool, fun moment for, for me. I know. A big shout out to Francisco and his wife, Francisco. They were great. They're from Portugal. Yeah, they were super fun lovely, to me. And we love them. And we're adopting you both. Yeah. And that was really exciting for me to meet the people that we've inspired and that inspired us and to make all these great connections. Steph, you were such a hero going up to absolutely <laughs> everybody, shaking hands and introducing our podcast. And we have so much opportunity going forward here to have some cool people on and do new things because of because we went to Oxenmoot. We made we had some so many cool conversations with folks. And mm -hmm. I'm so excited about what the next year is going to bring for our podcast because we went to Oxenmoot and we met all these cool people. So, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. That was the highlight for me. The stuff that we did. I mean, we did. There was lots of fun stuff, uh, but <laughs> that was the highlight for me was meeting all the cool people. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Going to Oxenmoot digitally is absolutely wonderful and the scholarship is great and you do get a lot of opportunities to meet folks in breakout rooms and in the chat and stuff, but you know, and even on social media if you're kind of doing that whole thing, but those moments of kind of like friendship that are inspired by like just yeah, just sitting down at a random table, you know, physically there, I think were just like the best parts of it for me. Um, yeah, I, I remember during the pub quiz, like you and I had gotten into the room, like the tent marquee kind of late. And so there weren't very many seats. So like we both just sat down at tables because we were like, oh, God, we got to sit somewhere. Yeah. And I happened to be at like a table of incredibly smart, cool people <laughs> who are much cooler and much smarter than me. And so I was just like, oh, OK, great. I can coast on all of you for this whole pub quiz, which was great. Yeah. But I made those like friends are people. Um. That, you know, that I then like had we had them all, you know, all weekend we would see them and hang out with them and have meals with them. And that is so lovely. One of the things that I think is so different from a lot of cons that you go to, Oxenmood's very small. <laughs> I know people were talking about how big it's gotten. Right. But it's you're talking to somebody who's like baseline for cons is Gen Con. Which is like so, a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. But Th thousands. We I don't met know. people on like the first day that we just hung out with the whole time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, 70,000 go to Gen Con. Yeah. So that's pretty different than like three. Yeah. I think it was 350 people were there. Yeah. Uh, in and person so we would and run another into 350 the online. same people over and over again. Yeah. And you would end up chatting with people. Mm -hmm. It was just terrific. Yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. It was amazing. Yeah. We and, you know, the other cool thing about being there in person uh, and I suppose, yeah, you could definitely do this online, too. Like and here's the thing. I want to say that I know it was super privileged that we were able to go. I don't think we'll be able to go again. So I so I think that you can achieve all of these things digitally online, too. But I just in just from, you know, this one year of actually being there in person, like it was very neat to be able to hear somebody's paper and then literally go sit next to them, you know, at the next meal and chat with them. Um, we made a really great friend who we sort of hung out with a lot that weekend, Anise Rogers, um, yeah. who did a wonderful paper. She uh, She's a romantic and she did a great paper about Tolkien and William Blake. And and we we like totally hung out the whole weekend. She was great and brilliant and amazing. What a cool like you know that's like you know she's in the Tolkien sphere, but maybe more so in the, like the the romantics and William Blake sphere. And yep. it was just cool to like have that those Venn diagrams cross. And now we sort of have a friend for life in England that we can go hang out with. So that was cool. <laughs> I yeah, really love. I just absolutely. love that. It's so great. Oh, I really wanted to say I love. I mean, we don't want to. We don't have to go through everything, but I. There were a couple things I really loved. There was. There's. Um. If you're able to go, if you can also swing it, try to go to all the meals. Like, just do it. I know they're they can be a little pricey, but go to the meals because the meals are where you meet a lot of buddies. And then I really liked on Saturday night they had a big like entertainments and masquerade thing, and then they have this big sing along called a filking. And an amazing band led by Pete Clark. And there was just like a lots of singing and it was very fun. And everybody was, you know, a little boozy. And it was really, it was really lovely. And it was great. It was lovely and fun. You probably heard Marcel mention this, but we got to try some whiskey that had been made or something cured in uh, a pine from the black pine, which is like Tolkien's favorite pine tree in the Oxford Botanical Gardens that unfortunately had to be filled in 2014. So they made whiskey out of it and it was delicious. We all got a little taste. So that was really fun. Um, there was just like lots of really cool moments. It was also a lot of, I think for me, like meeting my heroes and being like, you know what they say, uh -huh. never meet your heroes. That's not true of Tolkien heroes. Tolkien heroes are the best. We met like Dr. Sarah Brown. We met oh, man, um, she was Christine awesome. Larson. Oh my yeah. gosh, all of these amazing people um, who- Christy Larson was even cooler in person. I know, she's the coolest. <laughs> I know, I know, they both were. And like, they were so sweet and nice and um, like totally chatted with us afterwards. And like, it was just cool. Like these people, the scholarship, like it makes me, makes me love Tolkien so much. And then they're right there. It was just very cool. I was like, is it dorky to ask for a picture? Like, I don't know. No, it oh. was- it was great. Um, it was great. One of my favorites. I listened to a paper by Marilyn R. Uh, I am going to butcher this name, so I'm sorry. Pukila, The Tale of Two Laments, Boromir and the Four Erts, which was cool. It was about Irish laments being something that inspired the lament of Boromir. And then I sat at the table with the woman who gave the speech. And we ended up having a very cool conversation about Tolkien and religion. And that was the kind of experience that I think online is a great experience for Oxenmoot. And I love that they take that accessibility seriously to make Oxenmoot something that a lot of people can do, even if they don't have the ability to go physically. But I do think you have to acknowledge that being there physically is different and special. Mm -hmm. Because you yeah. do get that, like, see the paper, bump into them at a table have that chat 
connect in a, in a special way. And that's just something that is just really special. I got to meet the artist Elmanel, who does all this gorgeous Tangwar calligraphy, who was just the sweetest, was so excited to meet someone who had been supporting her through Patreon. And her art is unbelievably gorgeous. And it was so exciting to meet. I was like fangirling out super hard overseeing like her art in person and didn't realize that the artist was standing right there. And then she oh. recognized <laughs> me from wow. my name badge as someone who was like a Patreon backer. I've been backing her Patreon for a couple of years now. Oh, uh, And so she got excited to meet me as, a, as a, like one of her supporters. And it was a very fun moment there. And that's just the wow. kind of thing you, that you don't get to do online. So I'm super, super aware of the privilege that we had being able to go in person. And I would love to do it again. Whether or not we'll, I'll be ever be able to again, I don't know. It's right at the start of the school year. I have a school-aged child yeah. and my wife is a teacher. So Yeah. That's... For me, it's like right as the fall exhibition is being installed. It's re it's a, like very difficult. Yeah. Uh, consider moving it to a different time, Oxenmoot. Come on, Token yeah. Society. No, but I, I, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. No, it was just, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah, agreed. I made like, to all of you who I said, hey, come on the show, uh, and you said, sure, I will be <laughs> stalking you at some point on social media to get that going. I definitely, oh, oh, yeah. I wanted to mention, oh, yeah, okay, so let, maybe we should do, are we sort of rounding out? Should we do yeah. some thank yous? Okay, let's do some thank yous. So I want to, I think Jude and I both definitely want to thank the Tolkien Society for, I mean, putting this on. This is a absolutely humongous amount of work they did so well like their whole tech crew was absolutely fantastic um, oh yeah totally sean gunner uh as the as the um pre is it president is that his term is actually, that his name the the grand high sean muckety muck of, chair. of the uh tolkien the society yes uh, yeah and He's also amazing. a generally hilarious cool person yeah really cool who and we should definitely get on this podcast of to talk to yeah he wants to come on he wants to he actually wants to replace me as a host so you better watch out he's coming for you oh okay and i'm like i'm there for it <laughs> sean, sean we're calling you up it's happening um i also want to thank the co-chairs of oxenmoot elena davidson and asley johnston you guys are amazing i also we need to thank monty thorpe from the tolkien society because monty made this whole thing possible Monty yeah. was the one I contacted when we first got had this idea to do it, and Monty made it happen. So thank you so much. And then, of course, thank you to all the staff at St. Anne's for making the venue safe and fun and accessible. So that was great. Yeah. And maybe we should also, I, again, we just want to say thank you to everybody who helped with the Tolkien and New Media panel on Saturday. That would be Carl Southern, who made the technology stuff work so well. So thank you, Carl. Our steward, David Loeb, I believe is his name. Thank you, David. And of course, our amazing panelists, SR, Mercury, Marcel, and thank you to Jude as well. Thank you so much. And also, oh my thank gosh, you thank you to everybody for, who thank came. Thank you for setting it up and hosting it. Oh, stop it. Of course. Anytime. Let's do it again. Although, let's maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just got sweaty and <laughs> reached for the bag of candy corn when I stress eat some candy corn, even thinking about doing it again. But no, it was it was great to step out of our shell. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I also want to thank everybody who came to the panel in person and online. And even thank you to those of you listening now. We really appreciate you. Jude said during the panel that, you know, we make Atherbeth for just the both of us, but it is so 
wonderful to know that there are people out there who who like what we do um, and who support us. So thank you so much. That's really heartwarming. That was a wild moment because I have always said yeah. that I make Atherbeth for exactly two people, you and me. And discovering that there are so many people out there that it affects. It was mind boggling. And I'm so grateful for everyone that said that they enjoyed it, uh, our listeners that we got to meet and the people that were excited to listen to it. I'm still going to keep making the podcast for you and me, but I am excited for everyone else to also get to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. Absolutely. Me too. And then some just really specific thank yous. I want to thank Lizzie Locke, who was the first person to came to come up to me on Wednesday when I was feeling shy. And she welcomed me and um, she was like my first friend there. We also met some really great people from the wider kind of Tolkien new media community. It was great to talk to Alan Sisto from the Prancing Pony podcast. We, he and I had a really nice chat after the Analier. Matt from Nerd of the Rings and his lovely wife, Katie. Thank you for connecting with me on Saturday. It was great to meet you and everybody. Oh, and I do want to now mention my friend, Tim, who you heard me <laughs> say something to him as he was coming in. Um, I did want to mention my pal, Tim Schultz. He is part of the German Tolkien Society, and he has a really fun website called Tim's Tolkien Temple, which I'm going to link to. And he actually, so he and I were sitting next to each other at the Wednesday night 50th anniversary dinner. And he said, oh, are you, you're from Atherbeth. Oh my gosh, I you're one of the podcasts that I list on my website. He's got a German language website all about Tolkien and like the cool stuff he finds about Tolkien. And we're on his website. So that was like a very fun moment. That's cool. So that was really cool. Yeah. So big thanks to Tim. He was fun all weekend. Um, and all of our and all of our friends, the the wonderful Norwegians, everybody. Like I just love you all. You're the best. Yeah. So, okay. All right. Thank you again, Jude. This was great. I'm glad we got to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, me too. And it's definitely um, an experience I'm never going to forget. And I, I hope we can repeat it again in the future. Yeah, me too. So I just thought I would make a quick voice memo with these beautiful bells in the background. Uh, oh my gosh, it is Sunday, it's 6 o'clock p.m. in Oxford, and unfortunately for me, Oximood is now concluded, and ugh, dudes, oh my gosh, I, I really had the best time. I It's going to take me a little while to kind of process all my thoughts and everything I learned, and to kind of think about all the amazing people I met, but I just have to say, um, uh, I'm getting all, I don't know if it's the bells or the sweatiness or what it is, but I'm, I, I'm a little, I'm a little choked up. I'm going to miss um, everybody so much. And thank you so much to the Tolkien Society for doing this. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone on the committee and to everyone who volunteered, the stewards and the tech team and, you know, and all the people that helped get our meals and, to make it a really safe and fun and accessible event. Um, wow. I just take my hat off to you. You're fantastic. Thank you so much. Ah, I, yes, I will think about things a little more and then come up with something more eloquent to say, but I just, I will never forget this experience. And, oh, I'm going to like cry. Oh, this is dorky. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll just never forget it. It was really special. Sorry, this is so lame. Um, yes, I love you all. Oh, the bell stopped. Oh, now the bells are doing other things. Oh, boy. I feel like that's the bell telling me to wrap it up. Um, yes, okay. Thank you so much. And um, I will think some more and be back with more thoughts uh, 
But I guess, I guess it's, this is Stephanie signing out from Oxenmoot 50th um, anniversary, 2023. All right, catch you guys later. Bye. The road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please maybe consider leaving us a little, little review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at podcast.atherbeth.com. You can find the show on Twitter or X, I guess, no. and Instagram and Blue Sky and all kinds of things at atherbeth underscore cast. My pal Jude can be found at Aromatic Jude, and I can be found at the North Four. Producer James, our wonderful gentleman who edits all of our episodes and makes us sound so good, can be found at Jay Pearson. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings. Whoa. By Pony Music, courtesy of Pond 5. Whoa. <laughs> Scared myself. <laughs> Got a little Too much candy there. corn. Whoa. Additional music and sound effects licensed from Soundstripe, which can be found at soundstripe.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, podcast. Podcat. I do enjoy the podcat.